We're comfortable. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, guys. So, thank you, Owen. Pleasure. I thought by way of introduction, I might just mention how us guys have got in contact, which is through an online course being done by some guys at MIT called Leading from an Emerging Future. And it seems to have attracted a bunch of people who are interested in, in some of the big questions at the moment and particularly in, in finding solutions to them, in, in becoming engaged in, in activities, activism, initiative building, whatever it might be, but also networking with others who are, who are interested in the same things and creating together. Uh, and part of that has involved small teams of six people who'd meet regularly and meet to discuss the things that we're working on that we're interested in as part of the course and, and really kind of share and connecting around that. And, and we have all been part of the same group that has been meeting regularly and have been having some pretty fascinating conversations. Um, and particularly you guys, food is the thing that you're working on and you're interested in. Would that be correct? That would be correct. <laughs> Fantastic. And you know, it's very interesting to me because I don't think about food that much, really. It's, and I think that's partly why I wanted to have this conversation. I thought it would be interesting to, to unpack it a bit. So I thought, I wonder, I might just start by saying, where did the interest in food come from? Okay. Well, it's not only food, it's free food. Um, and I think that you're lucky because you, you don't spend much time thinking about it. Um, in our case, because individually, before we met each other, I started to eat only plants in an island in the Mediterranean. And that was really hard. So that really required me to think about it. I was living in Cyprus. Fresh fruit, uh, green leaves are almost imported and they're very expensive. So I had to plan around uh, a budget and where to get the best quality. So yeah, it was kind of a must to think a lot about it. Well, for me, I've always liked things that grow in a garden or you could go and forage for fruit like that is free and I really I always like fresh fruit and I think my parents also fostered that a little bit. My mom always looked that we have healthy food at home and have a salad every night. So then like almost like more than nine years ago, then I stumbled over a book and then watched a documentary and then I started also eating only plant-based and it, for me I found it so exciting. I wasn't even finding it difficult. Like I was like, okay, this it's just so much more exciting to try out all these new things that I don't feel like I have so many problems with it. The problems were really more in terms of socializing or family and like telling them it's not only a phase or like some kind of eating disorder or something like this, you know, like it's, it was something real that was part of my life. And like it wasn't only for the health benefits. It was really for me eating plant-based means more. It means like a 
doing something for the environment, giving back to the earth and taking from the earth and also like, yeah, like having this compassion, not only for my the human fellows around, but uh, also for the other living beings. Mm. You mentioned that idea of, of free food in particular. And I know you guys are, are working on this project that you've called Free Food for Futures. Where's, where's that coming from? What are you trying to achieve with this? I mean, I obviously free food, it says it on the tin, but could you expand it a bit? Sure. Should I start? Yeah. But from my side, as I already mentioned, I really like foraging and like that. there's so many things, especially in the summertime in Europe, like people don't ever go out anymore and, and take the food that is already growing and, and pick them. They just rather go to the supermarket and then complain how expensive everything is, especially things they could forage like berries, no? And there's so many things we don't know about wild growing uh, food and like also the fact that food becomes such a merchandise now and with that to, to the extent that everything is so processed like we have to bring food down to what it is it needs to nourish us and it shouldn't like cost us a fortune everyone should be able to afford it and it should grow on a land on this earth that is for everyone and so it should be free i mean at least the basic food should be for free what you do then with it if you process it i mean that is still another story but if you uh, harvest food it should come to everyone and everyone has a basic human right like the right to clean water or fresh air and it's not granted almost nowhere in the world so there's more movement now towards having more community gardens and maybe also community food forests already there's already a movement towards <clears throat> edible landscapes but it's still a niche movement. It's still like only a few people, but connecting these little dots and making it a larger movement and then really showing that it's possible to have free food for everyone. That is really like for me behind the idea. And then imagine how much money we spend nowadays on food. I mean, it depends on the country and, but how much money we could, like not spend and then therefore not spend hours in an office in a job that we don't like just to pay for food and for a lot of people also i guess for rent but yeah also food is a big factor hmm. yeah well the free foods uh, involves so much it's just like the tip of an iceberg you know like free food and everybody uh, in the internet is looking for savings um, is one of the most hit wording searched in this in the search engines no like where can i find good deals to eat cheap blah 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 so we tapped into that and also on the movement that everybody has been talking about of all these children and students getting out of uh, the schools on fridays and say that they don't want fossil fuels that they don't want uh, more oil, gas, uh, fracking, etc. But for example, I was talking about how difficult it was to eat well in an island in the Mediterranean where people would think, oh, wow, like, don't they have like the best weather to grow year round all the food supply? And surprisingly, 
they didn't. And I was I was talking to I was referring to an island, but I I've heard people from England also joking, no, ah, our island, or in Australia, oh, our island continent, right? And Australia, for example, is one of the countries that grow the most organic produce in the whole world. The contrast of another island, let's call it an island, UK no? or, or England. You guys don't grow almost anything. No? So if you really want to get rid of all the fossil fuels, you would be practically left with 40% of the foods that basically you don't like eating. So that creates a problem, no? Like you don't want to have people starving and all moody because they can't find their soul food here and there. So what can we do about it, no? How can we have both things take off? Like, okay, no, like leave the fossil fuels in the ground. Fantastic. What are you going to do instead of that? And right now, like something that is very, very uh, amazing for me is that some apples that you grow in your weather come from, come from orchards. And those orchards are out of the city, so nobody knows where they are. And instead of coming directly to the city, they shifted to China to get cosmetic treatment. So they're shiny and beautiful and then shipped back to you guys. So you can buy them in the supermarket for pennies. And people buy them and then get them at home and forget about them in the back of the, of the fridge. And when they're a little bit brown, you throw them to the, to the garbage bin. And of course, like apples are not going to feed you. Like people don't get excited about apples, right? But that's another part of it. Like free food shouldn't be only determined by a market. There's so much diversity of plant food that we haven't even tapped. And we consider it to be uh, so out of the reach of urban settlements or cities. No, like right now uh, in the world, there are so many people living in cities and almost all of the food is out of your sight, no? outside of the cities. And what Sylvie was referring to is like, let's plan to have food all around us, almost all year round, depending on the weather. You just mentioned that it's freezing cold in, in, in London, right? My sister just uh, went to give a conference in London a few weeks ago and she was like, oh my God, it's so like the movies, no? Like rainy and cold and what can be grown in that season? But you have the Eden project, no? And, and you, you can see these huge bubbles in a hole in some remote part of England having a Medi Mediterranean uh, ecosystem and then rainforest ecosystem and people go there and have an experience. Oh, okay, so what, why does it matter to save these plants from the rainforest or from the Mediterranean? But you have to pay for it and go to an adventure for a venue that is so expensive when 
we, we can design cities to have that experience with local varieties that create habitat for wildlife, from insects to foxes, um, to have social spaces for people to gather, not only plant trees because we need to check mark the the green spaces in our urban settlements but like to make them more purposeful uh, to 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 have a rescue of these ancient seeds that can do well in no matter the weather that you're going through today no like they can thrive in that weather and they can give you some sort of food uh, that basically will expand your horizons of what is available in your planet and and say wow like this i can't get in the supermarket and this is local and this came from the balcony of my friend or the park in front of me or in the bushes next to the place that I went through while I was commuting and that I can uh, cooperate and meet people and and have more interaction around those spaces. So yeah, like it involves so much and the free food part is just like a marketing hook, let's call it, no? Because it's catchy, like people want free food. But if you tell them, oh, so you can eat only plants, they will say, oh, no, like, only plants like they automatically think about the scarcity created by a market system and part of the project is to let them know about everything that is available to eat in the planet and and we're we're using a, a vegan permaculture design for community food forests. And that part, the community food forests, includes in the drawdown initiative, the 20 solutions, the 20 top solutions. It, it, it includes more than half of them. More than half of them, like starting from the number one, which is uh, the uh, refrigeration like how much refrigeration do you need at home to preserve your food that's the number one item in your house that consumes the most power and the also, fridge also in terms of the refrigeration if you have especially in the US, they have a lot of acs and ac i mean usually it's because the cities get too hot it's like a concrete jungle but if you have more forests within the city it might not need so much air condition anymore so that would be another saving there <laughs> yeah which is not the problem for london but in so many other parts of the world like you can't live without the ac on the whole day no mm -hmm. like, but uh, yeah so if you go solution by solution and 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 say okay community food forests what can it do like what like what can it do what is the possibility there and we're just starting to get the word out and connecting to already ongoing projects because people are finding out 
the necessity not just to plant trees. I don't know, oh, in like in the news all the time you can see so many countries and initiatives saying, I will plant one billion trees. Oh yeah, I will plant two billion. Huh? And it seems like again, like a technology solution, huh? like the technology got in got us into this mess, technology get, will get us out of it. Well, not only that, you're choosing one variable to maximize and just assuming that that will solve the issue as opposed to looking at it as a complex of, of many interrelated things, trees producing CO2 being one of them, but also land space needing to be available for, for other things, for agriculture, for, for wildlife, for even for human living and human infrastructure. The solution, let's just plant, plant trees, is is overly simplistic now something i wanted to just touch on i'm hearing you guys talking about the complexity of our global food system which is a massive issue for all sorts of reasons and i think in thinking about the the context of, of free food for example one of the issues that arises to me is like, it would be much easier to have a free food ecosystem within the UK, for example, that was all apple and local produce based. But the thing is, we have become accustomed to, to avocados and to pineapples and to all sorts of exotic produce. And letting go of some of that would be difficult. So do you think that in order to achieve a goal of free food everywhere, we would have to let go of some of the luxury in the way we eat and revert to a much more simplistic way of eating? Well, no, no one said that it would be easy. So mm. let's start from there, no? Like, like uh, we have created so much unbalance in, in the world that to say, hey, like, let, let's hold your uh, smartphone on one hand and with the left hand you will solve it. Like, we're not saying that, that it will be easy, but it, it has to be a joyful effort. Mm -hmm. It needs to have that element to understand that growing food is not something programmed in our collective uh, intelligence of, Oh, that's something that requires leaving your lifestyle and becoming a poor peasant in the field and working so hard from the sunrise to the sunset and barely making a living and living in this scarcity. No, it can be fun, it can be social, it can be fulfilling, it can give you so much uh, benefits other than the nutrition. Uh, so, so you're right. It's absolutely important to find out these um, adjustments in our diet. For example, let's throw in this story. No, like, like we are in the te techno-social era, right? Like in this podcast, but we still have monarchies. Like you live in a monarchy country, right? And the Queen Victoria was the emperor, empress, like the queen of, of India, right? And there's a movie about it. Like, 
like she was the, the queen of a foreign country and never tried a mango. And that was how many years ago? Like less than 200 years ago. Now you can go and spend eight pounds or I don't know how, how much a fresh, nice, big organic mango in, in your local supermarket. But you have a luxury that Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria didn't. And just in a 200 year mark. And what we can do is say, okay, for example, George Monbiot, this guy that writes from the Guardian, for the Guardian, he has a lot of information about this, like your whole island country used to be a rainforest. Did you know that? <laughs> like, I didn't know that. No, I thought <laughs> it was a forest. Exactly, no, but you, you, you feel it right now. It's raining the whole time. So a rainforest, like, like it's, it's like uh, something that nature wants to bring back. It wasn't a, a tropical rainforest. I'm no, sure. it's not a tropical, right. But I mean, like, uh, yeah, maybe you want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say also what you just mentioned is only a 200 time span that we had from like, okay, we had never mangoes or bananas in this part in the Western world, in the more Northern hemisphere. And, but in these 200 years, we also forgot so much. So instead of just thinking of what we need to let go, maybe letting come, letting come back things that we already have, like we, uh, like in England, you have so many probably wild berries and, and wild fruit that no one knows anymore, or almost no people would eat them. But they are all like they're much more nutritious because they don't come in from like a country far away. They haven't been radiated by coming through customs and they haven't been harvested unripe. You can take them when they're really ripe and you can preserve them. That's also something that we have forgotten. So I think there's a lot of like potential to get people also excited. I, I got really excited in the last two years when I lived in Brussels in Belgium about foraging, about learning about wild plants and like really taking what is in nature. And a lot of people have a, a little bit of a hesitation, I feel, to go foraging, A, because they don't know what to forage for, like what is safe to eat, and B, also because they live in a big city and think everything is polluted. But I mean, of course, you wouldn't take right next to the biggest um, crossroad or the biggest uh, traffic light but there are so many little parks you can go to and like especially in that last year i figured out like there were so many chestnuts in in parks and like this is a food source that is quite filling it's not only like that you can look for some herbs here and there and maybe some berries in two months of the year there's more food all year round that people have forgotten. I'm not saying that all this food will replace pineapples and mangoes and things that we have come accustomed to, but maybe they can slowly also come back into this and then replace a little bit the things we have so become so accustomed to. Because with climate change and with like where does all the fossil fuel go? It's a lot in transportation and storage of food and with peak oil at some stage. Maybe food will, this exotic food will become so inaccessible to, for most people because it will be simply too expensive to transport it and to store it with all this fossil food involved. So there need to be other solutions. And I think the earlier that people start with local solutions, the better. I mean, the more they become accustomed now, 
to looking for these solutions, the better. And I think what Jojo also said, it, it gets you out there, it gets you connected to other people, it gets you connected to nature and to, to yourself. Like maybe you have found a passion like me, I got really excited about this wild food foraging. Maybe something that you haven't considered before, like a, a hobby, you find a hobby that you haven't considered, like preserving food. So I'm, I'm more excited than the limitations that there are. Yeah, there's so many varieties of food. Like we prepared for being here with you an hour, talking from the camera, enjoying our conversation. So we brought bananas because when we get hungry, we like some bananas. Is high, high energy supply. So and we're living in a country where they grow. Yes. So these. <laughs> All organic, right? So this is the same thing that you can get in your supermarket, right? Like, like there's nothing new about this. So this, this one is supposed to get extinct in a few years because there is so much monoculture of this. Like, here's a quick story. Like, these probably grow the same variety uh, in Ecuador by numbers that we can't even grasp no like the the containers that are shipped to europe filled of these guys imagine them green and refrigerated all these fossil fuels used to get bananas to the old uh, uh, world no well how much they cost to produce so when we were in germany in an organic market, we got them for pennies because they were not getting eaten. When they were like this marked, they were thrown about to be thrown to the garbage. Yes, and then maybe if I just may add, in the south of France, like in the organic supermarket, everything was so super expensive. And the cheapest fruit of all was the one that came the furthest away with the bananas. Like not even their own local produce would make it to a, like the top of the list of what people can afford if they're really on a budget. And that, the, that tells you something is not right in the system. This is another, like, this is what we're talking about. This, people don't understand, no? Like, is this a banana? Why is it so little? If you For people it, who are just listening, yeah, there are these two little mini bananas that look kind of battered and brown and colorful as opposed to being yellow resplendent golden <laughs> and this is another kind no also very little they call it dominico these are costillon the flavors are completely different between these three you have these ones that are called purple bananas so if you talk only about bananas and people say oh i'm bored about bananas there's hundreds different bananas and we only get to eat one variety in our lifetime. That's why people understand that eating plants is boring. And it's absolutely the contrary. Like there's so much biodiversity, biological diversity out there to understand that they can fulfill us not only nutritiously better, but also like expand our our understanding about how fruit has been part of our human history. Like there's this book I want to bring in, it's called The Fruit Hunters. And just like 
this is just a, a, a line. It says, delicious, lethal, hallucinogenic, and medicinal fruits have led nations to war, fueled dictatorships, and lured people into new worlds. And it is a trip. This book is like not about vegans. Actually, they mock raw vegans. Uh, but it's such an adventure of time and history and, hum and humans uh, influenced by, by plants. Like just understanding that, that plants have been there before us for thousands, millions of years. And they have taught us to, to see in color, to know which is the ripe fruit. So now, from 12,000 years or 10,000 years, we have uh, believed this illusion that we cultivate plants, that we have domesticated plants. But for way longer, plants have domesticated us. And we, we can work together. That's part of the vegan permaculture approach. For example, your question was like, if we are used to eat pineapples, and we know that pineapples can't grow here, what is the first thing to do? And permaculture tells you, observe, observe, observe. Look around you, because nature wants to go one way, and usually the human ego wants to go another way. So if you want to put them together, they're fighting all the time, and it, and it requires a lot of energy, call it labor, call it money, call it time, a lot of energy to get the outcome that the human ego wants. And permaculture is telling you, observe what nature wants to go, and what you want to go, they need to be in sync. And then you work together with nature. And things happen faster. And, and it, nature won't require you the whole time to input energy. You just like try to give it a boost, a small design, and let it be alone. Do you know what I'm thinking of now? Is those Monsanto seeds that have been genetically designed so that they cannot reproduce. And that, are you guys familiar with that? Like that just seems to me like the complete antithesis of what you've described. It's like human ego seeing this thing that exists in the natural environment and saying, well, it replicates on its own. That's terrible for business. That means that we here can't maximize our profits on it. So what we're going to do, we're just going to delete that function from nature. Like, it's, it's trampling on, on the ability of, of ecosystems to, to self-sustain. And for, well, you know, humans, we are indeed ourselves part of the ecosystem. And I think sometimes we forget that. And when I hear you talking about working in line with, with the crops and the direction they're going to grow, that, it, that seems like to me, like the ecosystem thriving. Whereas if we're trying to delete these functions, then that's 
it's like it might work in the short run. It might make Monsanto a lot of money so they can produce a load more of their seeds. But if something comes along and wipes out all of Monsanto's seeds and we've got no other seeds left anymore, then we're in trouble. This is just, a, for me, this is just a cherry on the cake, like for everything or like the, the tip of the iceberg of what, everything that our food production system has endured over the last, let's say, 200 years since the Green Revolution. Like we have forced nature, driven nature to produce only, let's say, less than 100 varieties. Like most of it is coming from less than 20 varieties of crops and food that we are now growing. And there is like, there was an article in published, I think, in Nature and in, in National Geographic, where they showed like each variety or each plant species, like a, let's say a tomato or an apple. There were so many varieties and we have lost over 90% of each. Each variety is, is unimaginable, no? Like nature had a way to uh, defend itself against pests and be resilient. And we forced it so much that now it only produces like two or three varieties at maximum. Like if you go to your local supermarket and you see iceberg lettuce and uh, a few are not very, more very pale looking tomatoes and a cucumber. And then people think, oh, salad, oh, that's what we can eat. And so boring. Yeah, of course, iceberg lettuce is something I would never eat. Like it uh, has no nutrition. It's uh, not tasty at all. And it's like artificially grown. It's not even grown mostly in real soil. So there's so many things that went wrong. And Monsanto uh, like bringing patents in to protect their seeds and also making sure that they're the ones that sell the seeds, that sell the fertilizer, and then merging with buyer and then selling you all the drugs you need to uh, fix your fucked up health. So it's like the cherry or the popping. Right, Bayer Monsanto now, it's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> it is like the marriage out of hell, no? Like, no one can understand how they allow this to happen. And one aspect that most people don't think about it is that why would you want to adapt a system that is based on fossil fuels? Like, and it is not even working in this in the country that it was invented. Like it's it's only functioning, not working, functioning because they subsidize the hell out of fossil fuels, and they give this a uh, huge amount of money for farmers to grow these monocultures and get cancer while fumigating these fields over and over and over. And now the farmers are uh, winning the, 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 when, they, when they want to get money back for, for getting ill out of the company. They're suing. They're suing. Thank you. They're suing these companies, and and now everybody knows that it is a failed technological 
eagle field system that wants to be imposed worldwide. But the basic thing is fossil fuels. With fossil fuels, they fertilize for macronutrients, just three or four of them. And that's a big difference because since the Green Revolution, we have lost so much nutrition. So even though if you want to eat your salad, you're getting maybe one fraction of the nutrition that people in the 1940s were getting by eating the same amount of salad. So yeah, it's a complicated issue, but it is not working for, for humanity. It's just working for this control and fear and financial abstract world that is not in touch with reality and with the future emerging, you know, like the majority of the people have been growing with different systems that they don't require patenting seeds or buying any fertilizing or any herbicide that came from uh, weapons of mass destruction used in wars, you know, like, like the agent orange then transformed to the roundup ready uh, roundup seeds that that they sell worldwide and that you can even buy the roundup which is the commercial name of, of uh, glyphos uh, glyphosato glyphosate mm -hmm. in in the local uh, gardening store it, it it is a world that that doesn't belong to to the thriving world that we can feel it's coming so yeah like it's a big thing that you just brought in into the table like this is completely against life no vegan should be should be eating this poisonous food like okay so Yes. Here's a question for you, though. So we've mentioned veganism a few times, and I think it would be interesting to, to open this up and yes. to dissect it a little bit. Like, I think veganism has a very... It's a, it's a utopian goal that I often wonder, could it ever be fully achieved that everybody will only eat a plant-based diet like i imagine there are a lot of people who listen and think these are great ideas but ultimately i don't care enough about where my food comes from to radically change my diet and i wonder i mean i i almost feel myself i sit in a position where i'm really glad that there are people like you guys out there doing work and thought and networking around food and trying to think of what the future a much more sustainable future of food would look like for the ecology and for humans but then wonder is 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 just like universal veganism the answer is it achievable in the sense that there are very few things we've ever managed to get all humans to agree on we like to disagree and i have a feeling that a lot of people myself included disagree with things often just because we want to disagree with something 
And so if someone says, do this, we say no. And I admire a lot of what the vegan movement does, but I wonder if the future is not necessarily 100% vegan, but a lot more awareness around veganism and just many more plant-based alternatives available. Mm -hmm. But there is still meat, dairy produce available for people who produce them. I mean, I personally think it would be a great thing if we could stop this whole thing of having, like, for example, a piece of chicken wrapped up in plastic and presented to you in front of you in a supermarket that you can buy and take home and eat and actually never once reflect on the fact that this was a living being that breathed and felt. But then if someone raised chickens themselves and wanted to, to kill one of them and eat it on a special occasion and make it like a, a family thing, almost like a ritual of, of eating and enjoying this meat, I don't know if there's anything actually that wrong with that or something that we could get rid of or would even want to get rid of. Um, I think food traditions go so deep and eating meat is a big part of that. Do you think a fully vegan world is possible? <laughs> and would it be desirable? Like, What would we have to sacrifice in order to potentially make everything? Okay, so do you want to go first? <laughs> well, first of all, I would not like to say we have to sacrifice. I think that is already a very negative, and that's what a lot of people actually um, associate veganism with. I have to uh, not only sacrifice, I have to avoid, or um, how do you say that? No, like, yeah, avoid certain foods, and they don't see all the richness that could come in with other foods like before i was vegan i did not know such a variety of fruit and vegetables because i was only stuck to a few of them and there were so many aspects you touched like it's a part of tradition and meat eating yes but part of the tradition was also it was only eaten on special occasions and not like every day available conveniently in a supermarket you didn't even have to have a like a contact or connection with the animal people were still killing the animals themselves and that takes a lot of energy from you and I think people that did it felt that also and you also eat all this negative energy of a dying animal like you like it has it produces a lot of stress hormones and if you eat that too much like your body also suffers whether you feel it or not yet but I mean it manifests maybe in other diseases but also just if every if everyone would just go to the model that you described that if someone has some chickens or let's say even going hunting and hunt for some wild animals there wouldn't be enough for everyone to eat the amount there is right now it would be such a small amount that you would have in a week for per person like that would be a massive progress so that would be a, like we could avoid so much uh, carbon dioxide emission and so much also like other greenhouse gases just by going to this system of having like everyone really is thinking about whether I would like to kill my own animal that I want to eat. And then is that, is that enough for everyone? If I do this, like, and my neighbor does it and everyone does it, like, what would the world look like? So I think there's a lot of 
like it would be much more local as well. It wouldn't come like the fodder for the for the cattle wouldn't come from the rainforest in Brazil, and then like yeah, you would save a lot of plastic packaging, everything. You would save so much already. I think that would for the environment and also of course with the animals that would be already so much and also for people's health because if you eat less of it and eat less of this whole fear that is unpackaged and all these animals that are raised now in a mass production and have a lot of antibiotics and extra hormones and supplements uh, pumped into them I, that would change so much for the health system the environment and the animals and also for your I think for people's spirituality and for people's connection with nature, with animals and to, to each other, I think it would be a massive progress already. Like just going that step, like not saying everyone is vegan, whether this is possible or not, I think it is possible. It might not be like from one day to the other, that's for sure. But like, I think it's a slow progress. And then I always ask myself, like in a few, like maybe in a hundred years from now, people would maybe say like, why did we allow these uh, slaughterhouses and this mass production? And like in a way, I want to be not, I don't want to say I want to be on the right side of history, but I think I want to make it easier also for me. Like I'm already doing it now and in the future, maybe there's not even so much choice, but I want to do it now and I want to do it joyful and not because I'm forced one day because peak oil is over and there's no way we can produce that many animals to feed everyone. So I want to do it now and be part of this movement already now and whether we have a vegan world very soon or not, like this is not only up to me but I think there is a possibility.